the privilege of my life to be back here with you to open up God's Word. It's been over a month since I've seen your faces. I know it's been a couple weeks for all of us. But uh, again, my name is Mark. It, it's joy to be here with you. Uh, thank you so much for those of you that were praying for us uh, as we serve with an organization called Pioneers International. Uh, we help encourage, equip, train, and mobilize missionaries across Europe. And so this was a trip that we took for three weeks to, uh, to do just that, just to get a ground level view, uh, to be with missionaries, to encourage them to hear what they need, to try to raise more uh, awareness and support and missionaries to come join them. And so it was a great trip. We didn't spend more than two nights in the same bed over three weeks. So we were on the move. And so uh, it, it was a busy trip. But towards the beginning of the trip, I had a couple days uh, that we didn't have to meet with anyone. And we had to travel from Paris to uh, to Nice, so that's in the south. So we had to head south, and as I looked at the map, I said, I, I've got a detour to make. Uh, I need to get over to Switzerland. Now, Switzerland's probably the most beautiful country in the world, but that's not the reason I went. Uh, I needed to go to Geneva, and Geneva's a beautiful city on Lake Geneva and had a historic city, but for me, it was kind of a pilgrimage, and so I wanted to go to St. Peter's Cathedral because uh, just the, the weight and the history of that place, and, and as we traveled there, I was talking to my kids, boring my kids about the place, and uh, we, we went there uh, because that place was known 500 years ago as the womb of the Reformation. Uh, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church doors in Wittenberg, Germany, and he sparked something, uh, a move of God back to uh, the glory of God alone, back to uh, the grace of God alone, justification by faith alone, back to the word of God alone as the authority. Uh, but others took up the mantle and one guy took up the mantle in Geneva, and Luther simply referred to him as the theologian. The theologian was in Geneva, and so I had to go. So we got there and went to, got to the town, and I made a beeline for St. Peter's Cathedral and, and went in there because in St. Peter's Cathedral, as we went in and went down the long aisle, this church that was built in the 1100s, and I saw the pulpit, the pulpit of John Calvin. See, Calvin would ascend that pulpit many times during the week, and, and he would open up the scriptures. And, and from the scriptures, uh, th there's a lot of uh, uh, things you might think about when you hear that word, but the thing that Calvin did the best was to show us from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus. And so he would point to Jesus. And, and they didn't have podcasts back then, but, but the elders would sit in the first two rows, and they, dis, they developed a shorthand scribe to write down every single word of Calvin so that they could preserve the sermons because they felt the weight of the moment because Geneva was also a refuge city. Thousands of refugees flooded, religious refugees flooded into Geneva because it was, they were getting killed uh, throughout uh, the spread of the Reformation. And so Calvin started a school. It's, it's the oldest school in Switzerland still today, Calvin College. But it was a, a school to train pastors, really to train missionaries. It became known as Calvin's School of Death. Because as he would send them out, they would die for their faith. Calvin's from Paris. Uh, and he sent at least 88 students back into France to plant churches that would give their lives for the glory of God, for, for the defense of justification by, faith, by grace alone through faith alone. 
And so I went there and I sat there and I just kind of took in the moment, like uh, thanking God that, that, that through this place, uh, there was a time when, when truth rang out, where light rang out and, and people uh, got into it. And, and in that moment, after a few moments, uh, my daughter Abby came and sat next to me and, and we're sitting there and we're sitting in the, the, the pews that the elders would have sat in taking the notes and we're looking up and I'm just pondering the weight and the significance of the history of it. And then in walks about 20, uh, 20-something-year-old, four, four American tourists, boys and girls, uh, that, that come in, and, and they're looking around. And, and it's what you do when you go to Europe. You go into every old cathedral, and they all look the same, so it's hard to know what's the significance of this moment. And, and so they come, and they stop right in front of me and Abby, and, and right underneath the pulpit, and, and they kind of are looking around. They're like, huh, like, what's this place about? <laughs> And the other one's like, I don't know, it's just another church. And then a third one, a girl was on her phone, and actually she was at least looking it up, like uh, going on Wikipedia, St. Peter's Cathedral. And I thought, maybe there's some hope here. And so all of a sudden, she found something. Her eyes get bright, and she says, oh, in 1999, the Dalai Lama was here. And they're all like, oh, cool, the Dalai Lama? And she became a Dalai Lama evangelist in that moment because she's like, no, you don't get it. He's a really, he's just, he's kind of, he's neat. And they're like, okay. No, no, he, he came to Chicago once and I saw him. I just, he's just kind of cool. And they're like, well, okay. And they, they shrug their shoulders and, and they walk out of the church. And, and uh, my jaw is on the ground. I'm like, are you serious? The Dalai Lama? No offense to the Dalai Lama, but come on. I mean, he's just kind of neat. And I just thought, oh, gosh, this is killing me. But at the same time, I thought, you know, in our day and age, a lot of people think that, not just of the Dalai Lama, but probably Jesus. In this postmodern world, like, he's just kind of cool. He's just kind of neat. And... uh, we're okay with a Jesus that's cool and a Jesus that's neat, uh, but, but in, in, in our day and age, Jesus has been co-opted by every ideology, every, every political group, every person to, to mix and match to fit their own desires for Jesus. And so we have a communist Jesus, we have a Republican Jesus, we have a, a progressive Jesus, we have a feminist Jesus, you have a fill-in-the-blank Jesus, we have a Jesus that makes no demands on our lives, a Jesus that uh, is, would only affirm everything I say and do and think. All of those Jesuses are welcomed in our culture. But we gather here in search of an encounter with the real Jesus. Uh, and we believe that comes through the Word of God. But, but if you are a follower of Christ and, and, and you've begun to t- tell people about Jesus and you've gotten past the, he's kind of cool and, and he's neat, eventually you're going to get to the question of the Bible. And, and the question is, do you really believe that? I mean, it's 2018. Can you really trust in that? Like, it's so regressive. I mean, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? Uh, they'll say things like, I believe in Jesus. I just, you know, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, so I don't, I don't read that. Or, uh, I'm a Christian. I'm just a red-letter Christian. 
So, so red letter, if you don't know what that means, is that you can get a Bible with the words of God in the Old Testament, the words of Jesus in the New Testament in red, so, so you know that they actually came from his mouth. And, and they'll argue, well, that's all I really believe. That's the kind of Jesus for me. Well, you're going to have to eventually come to the, the, the fact of, uh, of this, is, this is our source. This is our, our, our hope. Uh, but, but a good question to ask and to ponder, and the question that the text is going to bring up for us today is, well, what did Jesus think about this? What was Jesus' convictions? How did this affect and influence Jesus? And if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then, then we should align our view with his view. We should have our passion be his passion, and we should understand this. And Jesus is going to say two main things about the Word of God. The first one, probably the vast majority of you already agree with, and the second one may be a surprise. You could be in church your whole life and not know that this was the deepest conviction of Jesus' thoughts and actions when it comes to the Word of God. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're working our way through John's Gospel uh, chapter by chapter because we want to see the real Jesus. And so uh, we're we're encountering the real Jesus. And we haven't, uh, maybe you're new here and and we haven't been around for the last couple weeks. And so John chapter 5 is where we're going to go. Before we dive into that, I I do want to just, because of the weight of this moment, I want to pray and then ask God to be our teacher once again. So will you join me? in prayer. God, it is uh, great grace to us that you would address us now personally through your word. Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice through this text. God, I know that there's nothing I could say that could speak to people in any meaningful way, but uh, your word can, and your spirit can bring it alive to us, and you can do that for each person in here. So, Holy Spirit, make your word clear, that we might see Jesus, that we might know Jesus, that we might savor Jesus, we might trust Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of context and and reminder of where we're at, in John chapter 5, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, Matthew preached the last two weeks, and by the way, I was tremendously blessed by that, uh, by his sermons, and I know you were, and he uh, delved into this story where Jesus heals this paralyzed man for 38 years and uh, tells the man, take up your mat and and walk, and and he does that, but uh, verse 9 tells us there's a problem. It was on a Saturday. It was on a Saturday, and he was carrying his mat. Now, this is going to begin a a confrontation with the religious leaders. Because again, in our day and age, Jesus is kind of a, a, in the the cultural mindset, a bearded Mr. Rogers, just kind of meek and nice and would never offend anybody. But then all of a sudden, they murder him, and it doesn't make any sense. But this passage is going to show us why they're going to murder Jesus. It will make sense perfect sense in the minds, at least, of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, because he was a threat to them. But, but not, not only that, we'll see in this passage, as, as the Pharisees begin to have this uh, uh, interaction with Jesus, uh, that there's some pushback. Now, the Pharisees, you have to understand, I've said it before, they are the first fundamentalists. They are committed to the Word of God. More than anyone else in this room, I can guarantee it. Anyone else have the Old Testament memorized? They had it memorized. They were zealous for this. 
They, they, were, uh, they, they wanted to make sure that they did not transgress the law as their forefathers had done for generation after generation after generation. And, and so what they did was uh, that they took the law and they added some buffer laws. And as a parent, I get it, right? Like, I don't want my kid to go up to the very edge all the time, so I got some buffer laws. No, you won't do that. You don't do that. They've got buffer laws uh, around the law, and they're saying, how can we make sure as a people we don't break God's commandments? And so they would have all these buffer laws. They, they would have over 600 of them, 39 of which had to do with the Sabbath. And in the first century, they had this kind of debate among the theologians. Does God keep his own laws? Does God keep the Sabbath? And some said, well, uh, one of the laws they had was uh, you could not carry anything out of your home on the Sabbath. That would be considered doing work. And so some Jewish theologians said, well, because the whole universe is God's domicile, he can work because he's in his home. And so that's how they got around it. Others said, no, no, no. That's just, that's just stretching it too far. God has to work on the Sabbath. Because if God were to cease to work for a millisecond, the whole universe would implode. And so, yes, God works on the Sabbath. Now, that, those two things become very important in our passage. And so they find this guy, and he's carrying a mat, and he's not in his home. And they're like, what are you doing? And he sells out Jesus. That, that guy, that guy did this to me. Oh, oh, well, that sounds even like more work. He healed you. And so they go to him, and they begin to confront him. And in verse... Uh, 16 says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now listen to what Jesus says. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Maybe, maybe you can start to connect the dots in your head. See, the, the, the theologians had agreed, Jesus, that, that, that the father, that God was at work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, my father's at work. And guess what? I'm at work. And in case you haven't connected the dots, John connects the dots with us in the very next verse, 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. No one's equal to God. Unless you're God. So Islam says that's blasphemy. That verse is blasphemy. The Jews said that's blasphemy. There is only one God, which we heartily agree with. But Jesus says, just as your theologian says, God is at work. Guess what? I'm at work because guess what? I am God. That's the claim that Jesus is making. And this is the claim that will get Jesus murdered. It's not because he's Mr. Rogers and they murder him. He's blaspheming in their eyes unless he's right. So that's the context. Now, now let's go to verse 31. Jesus is sort of, in a sense, on trial. And if you're on trial, you're going to bring some witnesses to your defense. And Jesus is going to have three witnesses. And then it's going to become very important. You'll see what, what I talked about in the beginning with the word. Let's look at verse uh, 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So first century jurisprudence, if you had anything in the court of law, you had to have two or three witnesses witnesses to, to establish the claim. And so he says, I get it from an earthly perspective. If I'm just the one talking, uh, I can't uh, 
defend my testimony. But he says, I've got some witnesses, Your Honor. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the, that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So I'd like to call to the, to the, to the dock uh, John the Baptist. That's what he does. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, I just want to pause there real quick because I underlined that in my Bible this week. And, and once again, I was blown away by the mercy and grace of Jesus. He's talking to the people he knows are going to murder him. And even in this tense conversation, he says, look, I'm telling you this because I want you to be saved. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to taste of the mercy and grace of God. And so he brings forth John the Baptist. Now, now the Pharisees recognized John the Baptist as a prophet because all the people recognized him as a prophet. And to go against that was, to, was tenuous for them. And so when John the Baptist comes forward, remember in chapter 1, when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he says, There's my first witness. He goes on. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice a while in his light because he was calling the people to repentance. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. He says, I'd like to bring a second witness to the stand, your honor, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he brings his works as the second witness. And even the Pharisees understood this. If you remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do the works that you are doing if God were not with him. So Jesus says, you see the guy that was healed? You see the water turned into wine? You see all the other works that John doesn't even mention for us? He says, those testify about me, but he's got an ace in the hole. He's got a third witness. That he calls to the stand. Verse 37. And the Father. I'd like to call the Father to witness here in this moment uh, on my behalf. Uh, I don't know of any better witness in the universe than, than God the Father. And so he brings God the Father into it. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. So how in the world does Jesus bring the Father as a witness on his behalf? Well, that gets to it. Verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus' first conviction about the scriptures is that they are the word of God. He brings the scriptures, he brings the Father through the scriptures on his behalf. And so we ask the question, what does Jesus think about the, the scriptures? Jesus was absolutely committed to the absolute authority of the scriptures. In John chapter 10, he'll say, the scriptures cannot be broken. 
In Matthew 5, 18, in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus says, I believe this is from, from the Father, not just in the, the general sense about what's spiritually true, that the, the actual I above, the dot above every I and the cross in every T is from the Father. In Matthew chapter 19, he's talking about marriage and he quotes Genesis 2. He says, For this reason, a a man shall leave his, his mother and father and cling to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And he says, God said that. Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, it's actually, it's not in red letters if you have a red letter Bible. It's Moses recording this. But, but what Jesus is saying is, even through the human authors, the ultimate source and authority of all Scripture is the Father. And so everything the Father says is, through men and otherwise, is authoritative. Do you know what that means? It means you can throw away your red letter Bible. Because every other word in the Bible is as authoritative than every red letter that you have in your Bible. That becomes very important. It becomes important when you talk about things about like ecclesiology, how the church is formed. I, I know some people will say, well, let's just do what Jesus did. Let's just look at Jesus' model. Well, Jesus is as inspired through the Apostle Paul who says this is what elders and deacons and church members look like that he is on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and God, uh, Jesus is absolutely committed to the authority of the Word of God. And not only that, he was committed to the authority of it in himself, for himself. Whenever he was pressed on, whenever he was tested, uh, Scripture came forward out of his life. And so when he was in the wilderness and fasting for 40 days and then tempted by the, the accuser, he always answered what? It is written. And then he'll go back to the book of Deuteronomy. He'll go back to Moses and he'll quote Scripture. And so Satan will say, turn these, bread, turn these stones into bread. And he'll say, Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It was absolutely authoritative in his own life in, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane when, when he's about to be arrested and they come to get him. Peter takes a sword and cuts off the ear, the ear of one of the soldiers and, and Jesus heals it and, and Jesus basically rebukes him and he says, don't you know I could call forth a thousand angels on my behalf and my father would deliver me, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? He was obsessed with fulfilling every detail of the scriptures and he does when he's got the cross on his back and he's crawling up the hill to Golgotha, women are weeping and wailing. And he says this in Luke chapter 23, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. And then he quotes Hosea to them. Even in that moment of anguish, the scriptures are pouring out of Jesus because they're authoritative to him. On the cross, as he's receiving the full justified wrath of God for your sin and mine, even in that moment, his mind goes to Scripture. And he quotes Psalm 22, no doubt having the whole psalm in mind, but Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone once said that if you cut Jesus, he'll bleed the Bible. It was just permeating in his life because he believed in its vitality, in its authority, and it was his lifeblood. And so a question that arises out of that is, is it your lifeblood? Do you have a scripture flinch? Like, like when, when life hits you or comes at you, is it scripture that, that automatically stirs your soul and finds, a footing, finds ground for your feet? 
It was for Jesus. In, in John's gospel, in, in, at the very end, I want you to just see just how authoritative the scripture is for Jesus. So Jesus has now been suffering on the cross. In John chapter 19, he's moments, just seconds away from dying. And verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. In his last breath, he's thinking, I'm fulfilling the scripture because it's the scripture that that God has filled me up with. It's a scripture that's authoritative. And so you, you have to have an authoritative scripture. If you don't, then you'll just pick and choose what you want and you'll be the same. See, one of the, one of the blessings of Scripture is that it confronts us. It, it challenges us. It calls us to repentance. And, and in so doing, it shapes and forms Christ in us. But if you don't believe the Scripture, then you can make it say and do whatever you want. So that's the first thing. He had an absolute confidence in the authority of the Scripture, and he called it uh, his Father's Word. But you know what? It's not enough to have, a, have that view. Because the Pharisees had that view. The Pharisees believed that this was the word of God, at least the the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. They believed it came from the mouth of God. They would affirm all of that. They had a very high view of the Bible. And Jesus would say, your view of the Bible is not nearly high enough. He had a second conviction about it. And he's already kind of pointed to it. But let me show you it again. It says, uh, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Drop down to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He says, Moses wrote of me. Here's the second thing that that many Christians don't understand and they don't get. And they come to the Bible and they think uh, it's just kind of a mishmash of of different books and different genres and and genealogies and and proverbs and poetry and history and law and all these things just kind of jammed together. and, And we don't know how to make sense of it. Jesus wants to make sense of it for you. It's all about Jesus. He believed in the, the unity, not only the authority, but the unity of Scripture. The ultimate purpose, the gift of God to you and me through His Word is that you would see Jesus on every page. Jesus on every page. So He gives us a Jesus-centered hermeneutic, a way to read our Bibles, to see Jesus. And if you begin to see it that way, rather than just uh, 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 law or moralism or, or whatever the case may be, uh, then you will find hope and freedom in it. But if you don't, it will crush you. Uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, used to have a recurring nightmare, as he called it. He was not a believer. But in his nightmare, he would wake up out of breath because in the dream, he had a giant Bible on his chest crushing him. And if the Bible is just a list of do's and don'ts, that's what it will do to you. It's a powerful picture. If the Bible is just about you're not good enough and you haven't done right and you got to do better, it will become a crushing burden to your soul or it will crush you by turning you into a Pharisee, into looking at how good you're doing. 
how, how good you are with, with following all these things. And, the, and your heart will leave no room for the grace and mercy of God because you won't think you need it. But if you see the Bible as a unified scripture, all telling one story, pointing to Jesus, there's hope, there's joy, there's freedom in this. Jesus, a few pages back in, in Luke chapter 24, it has been crucified, murdered, buried for three days, resurrected. Luke chapter 24 is Easter Sunday. He's appeared to some people. Now it's Easter Sunday afternoon, and two of his disciples are on their way to Emmaus, seven miles outside of Jerusalem. They're downcast. They're, 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 their world has been turned upside down. They're, they're struck to the core. And Jesus walks alongside them, and they don't recognize him, and he begins to ask them, so, hey, what's up? And they're like, you don't know what's up? <laughs> like, everyone knows what's up in Jerusalem. They murdered Jesus, and we had hoped that he would be the one. And he, he pays attention to them for a little while. But at a certain point, Jesus loses his patience. And he says, was it not necessary to fulfill the scriptures that the Son of Man would die and be betrayed? And they're like, well, what are you talking about? And then for the next three hours, as they walk to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He just walked them through Genesis, Exodus, Le Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Just keep going and going and saying, did you see? It, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And, and this is why this happened. This is why that happened. And so that's a sermon for another time. But how, how do we see Moses testifying of Jesus? Well, well, John in his gospel is doing it all the time. And he will continue to do it even more as we go through this series. But John chapter 1, John the Baptist encounters Jesus. We already talked about it. What does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? Because he knows Moses. He knows the Exodus. He knows the Passover. He knows that a lamb had to die uh, and the blood of the lamb had to cover the, the house so that the destroying angel would pass over. And John sees Jesus and says, that was about you. That was about you. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. We said it's not just a, a, a nice party trick. No, he takes the, the jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. And he fills those up and he says the time of the old has come to its fulfillment. All of those laws about our, our uncleanliness before God pointed to our need for Jesus. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes and he says, you must be born again. You must be born of the water and the spirit. And he's, he's referring to prophecies in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And then he says, just as the son of man was lifted up in the desert, uh, uh, just as a snake serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up. He's talking about the book of Numbers and, and how Jesus was represented there and so on and so forth. When Jesus turns over table in the temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. They're like, what are you talking about? Well, if they knew how to read their Bible, they would know that the temple was only a shadow of the substance that Jesus would bring. And so John's going to continue to do that. But, you, but what I want you to get is the purpose. The purpose of the Bible is for you to see, savor, and know Jesus. Because you can give your whole life to this book, and you can memorize this book, and you can obey this book, and you cannot know Jesus. And in the last day, Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. 
And so Jesus, in his kindness, is bringing forth the word of God as our hope. So if that's true, then how do we apply this to our life? Well, one, again, none of us have the same conviction that Jesus had about the authority and unity of the Bible, but we would do well to begin to move in that direction. And so we would commit ourselves to seeing Jesus on every page. And so however it is, uh, this is the word of God. This is for your good. This is for your feeding. If you aren't in some way, shape, or form feeding on this, you're missing the purpose of your life. So many times we, we ask the question, what's God's will for my life? Guess what? He's not hiding it. It's not a mystery. God's will is that you would know Jesus and make him known. And that happens through the word of God. We say we want to be a spirit-led church. Every church I've ever been to says that. We should not expect to be a spirit-led church without first being a word-fed church. Those that are most spirit-led are most word-fed. And so you feed on this. Get a study Bible. Because there are a lot of things that are confusing. And you won't be able to readily connect the dots. A study Bible will help you with that. But, be, but again, begin to see and, and ask God. Every time you come to it, pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Lord, would you give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you as I open up your word? This is an eternal thing. We should have a Holy Spirit zeal for the word of God. That's what Jesus had. And so as we line our life up with him, may we have that. Now, again, we want to help you with that. We want to help you in any way we can. I, I've, I've said it before, but I want to, uh, this is not the Bible, but if you have little kids, this is an amazing thing, an excuse for you to learn how to see Jesus on every page. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name. It kind of goes an overview through the Bible, and it's a great excuse to read it through your kids, but in, in so doing, learn how to see the whole Bible as ultimately a story about Jesus. So we have some new parents here. I want to give this to you here. Um, like within the last month, if you've had a kid, raise your hand here. There we go. Yes. Can, can, can we pass that back to the Sanchez? All right. Amen. Anyone have a kid in the last six months? Raise your hand. Anybody? The last year. Oh, wait. We got some back here? I know that baby's not. I've got another book for you. This one is by Kevin DeYoung, The Biggest Story. Similar, it's just beautifully illustrated. But again, the whole point is, is he's helping parents to help their kids see Jesus on every page. But the, the benefit of that is you get to do that yourself. And so can we pass that back as well? Thank you. All right, how about in the last two years? Anyone have a kid in the last two years? All right, we got some more. All right, now if you ever already have this book, I'm going to ask you to take the other one, but which one would you like? This one. Okay, there you go. You already have both of them? You already have the Jesus one. Okay, there you guys go. I've got two more. So uh, who else doesn't have these books, but you have kids? Oh, Joe and Whitney. Okay. Do you have either one of these? You have both of them? Super spiritual. Okay, we, which one would you guys like? The Jesus Storybook Bible? Oh, wait, they're debating it. Which one would you like? The story. The, uh, Kevin DeYoung. All right, pass that back. I've got one more. Yeah. Yeah, we gave her one, didn't we? We already gave her one. We're ahead of you, but thank you. We were thinking of her. 
Okay, is that anyone? I was like, wait, that's not you. Um, <laughs> who else? Come on. This is going to be on the podcast. It's awkward. Okay, there we go. There we go. Can you fit? Thank you. There you go. That's our gift to you. But again, I would say even if you don't have kids, like go, go get those books because they're, they're that good for you. So, so commit to that. Commit yourself to that. Commit to each other. Every week as we gather, there is going to, when we open the word, we're looking for Jesus. That, that, that's what we're doing. And may Jesus shut this place down if there ever comes a day when we go off on our own agenda and we go away from this book. So we're looking for Jesus. We, we do that in our gospel communities. There'll be a time when you gather together and, and we'll open the word. And even if you know nothing about it, you can just sit in there and hear the story and ask the question, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? How do we apply this to our lives? And then finally, if I would encourage you, if, if you want to dig deeper in this, Meet with someone one-on-one, someone maybe that's further down the road than you. If you don't have someone like that, see myself, see Brad, we'll, we'll connect you with people in this church that would be gladly walk you through the Bible so that you can see Jesus on every page. Now, I want to close by a quote. I started with Calvin, and I found this quote. I won't read the whole quote because it's a very long quote, but Calvin basically is in this quote showing Jesus on every page. And if you, I'll post the whole quote on Facebook, but uh, in it, he just talks about how uh, Jesus was here and here and here and here and here. But he kind of concludes the quote, quote like this. He says this, this is what we should, should in short seek in the whole of scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to Jesus. And for a fact, since all the treasures of wisdom and understanding are hidden in Jesus, there is not the least question of having or turning toward another goal. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you that you are so word-saturated that at every turn, you showed us the importance of your word. Lord, all of us fall short in that, um, but I thank you that your word tells us that you are full of grace, mercy, and patience. And so, Lord, even now, would you help uh, just show us one thing, one step that we can take to begin to align our view of the Bible with your view of the Bible. Help us to see its authority, authority over our life and help us to see you on every page. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.